Wildwood Community Church exists to glorify God by connecting people to Christ, His worship, His community, and His mission. To contact us or for more information, see our website at wildwoodchurch.org. Well, we are in the midst of a series walking through Romans chapters 7 and 8 on the topic of the spiritual life, navigating life in the Spirit's power. And this series helps us to understand what a Christian life looks like. Not just a life, but a Christian life. What is particularly Christian about our daily lives? Romans 7 and 8 details that for us, and we've been walking through that over the last uh, couple of weeks. We began two weeks ago, and we saw that because of what Jesus has done for us, we have the opportunity to live out our life in the newness of the Spirit and not the old way of the written code. And then last week we saw that we live out this new life in Christ, but we live it out in the old address of the flesh, and so we have a struggle that we go through in our lives. And today we're going to see how Jesus helps us in the midst of that struggle by looking at Romans chapter 8, verses 1 through 11. But before we look at those verses together, I want to just uh, reflect with you on maybe something you can relate to, and that is a home renovation project. How many of you have ever embarked on a home renovation project? Okay, lots of hands have gone up in the room. Now, let me ask you this. Because of that uh, experience that you have had, what is the, the easiest part of the home renovation project? What's the easiest part? Okay, I heard a demo out there, but I think it's even easier. The easiest part is deciding you want to renovate something. That is by far and away the easiest thing because you sit in your house and you look around and you can see things that you wish were more beautiful or you wish, wish were more useful. Those are the two things that you think of as you look at your house many times because our houses are imperfect places inhabited by imperfect people and either our whims change or our needs change and you look around your house and you see things that you'd rather be more beautiful or more useful. The easiest part is determining that something needs to be renovated or you would like to renovate something. But what is the hardest part of that project? Actually doing it, right? Uh, deciding you want to do it is easy. Actually doing it is hard. I, I think about this in my own experience. Uh, the first house we lived in here in Norman had uh, some cabinets that kind of set off the kitchen too much and made it feel kind of boxy. And if your kitchen's like mine, it's kind of where people go to gather in their house. And so we wanted to take down some cabinets to open the kitchen up a little bit when, when guests would come over. And so uh, I saw that. I, deciding that I wanted to do that, that was easy. Actually, even beginning the process was not all that hard. I just got a skill saw and climbed up on top of the cabinets and started cutting. I, I realized there's better ways now to do this, but I didn't know any better, and I just got after it. Deciding I wanted to do it and getting started, that was easy. But the problem was when I began that project, it quickly became apparent that I was not going to make it more beautiful or more useful. And so I needed some help, and so I used a phone a friend, and I called a contractor friend of mine to come over and bail me out of my struggle. Um, now, I share that with you today, uh, not just as a confession of my inability to uh, fix things, but, but, but also as a parallel to the spiritual life. What is the easiest part of spiritual renovation? deciding that you want to change. That's the easy part. We all can sit around our lives and find areas that we wish were more beautiful or more useful for Jesus. 
We all can, can look at these areas of our life and see where we want to change. And we might even uh, make a decision to start that change. You know, we, we come to, to church camp when we were a kid or we, we come to a worship service or to a Bible study. We hear a, a message on the radio and we get all fired up about changing something in our lives, about renovating something in our spiritual life. Deciding that we want to change, that's the easy part. And then oftentimes we'll even take that next step. We'll go to Mardell on Monday morning and buy the journal or buy the book or, or get the study Bible or, or join the sign in the card to join the small group or whatever it is. There are things that we want to change in, in making that first step. That's the easy part. But what happens after we make those steps? We don't always follow through, do we? We struggle with that. Well, is there more that God offers us in our spiritual growth than just beginnings? The answer, friends, is absolutely yes. When I got in trouble in my house, I used the phone a friend and I called a contractor who came over and had the skill to make it useful and beautiful. When I get in trouble in my spiritual life, the Apostle Paul let us know last week in chapter 7 and verse 24 and 25 that we can, we realize that wretched people that we are who will deliver us from this body of death, we can call out to our ultimate friend, we can call out to Jesus Christ himself, and thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord, he comes and rescues us in our spiritual life. But how does he do that? How does he rescue us in our everyday Christian lives? We're going to see that today by looking at Romans 8, verses 1 through 11. I'm going to read those verses for us, and then we'll back up and see uh, three things from those verses today. The Apostle Paul writes in chapter 8 and verse 1 and says this. He says, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do. By sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. If the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his Spirit who dwells in you. Now, in these 11 verses today, we're going to see three things about how Jesus comes to our aid in the midst of our struggle with sin in this life. Sometimes, as we look at these things, I, I'll pick out uh, phrases that will help us make sense of it. Today, I'm not going to use any of my words. I'm just going to use quotations from this passage because, friends, Romans 8, 1 through 11 are some of the most precious words in all of God's Word for us. 
And so I want us to, to fully bask in God's word and what it says here. Three things I want us to see, three phrases. The first phrase is this, no condemnation. No condemnation. He says it right there in chapter 8 and verse 1. Now, this is an amazing statement, no condemnation, because what have we seen from the book of Romans? We've seen from the book of Romans that humans are subject to condemnation. We've seen that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. All includes both you and I and everyone else in the world. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We've also seen in chapter 1, verse 18, that the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all unrighteousness and ungodliness of men. What that means is that all humanity is under condemnation from God because of our sin. We all have that in common. But what's interesting is that Paul writes in chapter 8 and verse 1, and he says, therefore, now there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. He uses that little word now. That's a very important word. He says, therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. What Paul is saying is that he's writing this to those who are in Christ Jesus, those who have placed our faith and trust in Jesus and who he was and his sacrifice on the cross for our sins. Those who have placed their faith in Christ are now no longer under condemnation. We were at one time, we are no longer because we are in Christ. What's interesting, though, is the timing of this phrase. By saying that now there is no condemnation, he's not just saying For those of us who are in Christ Jesus, the condemnation is past, but he's also using this phrase right after chapter 7. Chapter 7 was a a chapter full of struggle for people living out their Christian lives. What Paul is saying, I believe, as he says that there is therefore now no condemnation, is he's saying that now, right now, for Christians who struggle with sin, guess what? There's no condemnation. He says there is, is no condemnation. Condemnation uh, is the sentence that follows a guilty verdict. Romans chapter 6 and verse 23 lets us know that the sentence that follows the guilty verdict of sin is death and separation from God. What Paul is saying is that for those of us who are in Christ, now there is no condemnation. There is no ultimate punishment for our sins because we're in Christ. He says no condemnation. He doesn't say no sins. He doesn't say, therefore, for those who are in Christ, there's no more sinning. Aren't you thankful? Because if he said that and we sinned, then we're not in Christ. But he doesn't say that there's no more sinning. He says that there's no condemnation. What an amazing thing that somehow we sinful people could live out our lives and have our sins forgiven, find ourselves in a no-condemnation kind of life. How is that even possible? Well, he answers that for us in verses 2 and 3. In verse 2, he reminds us of this theme that he's been hitting on throughout this section. He says, For the law of spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. What he's saying is that In Christ, we are set free from two aspects of the law. We are set free from having to obey the law completely in order to gain God's favor, and we're set free from sin's ultimate consequence under the law, which is death. If we are are in Christ, 
then we have been ushered into a new realm that is a no-condemnation kind of realm because of what God has done for us in Christ Jesus. Not only does he make that declaration in verse 2, but he explains it even more in verse 3. In verse 3, he says, For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. Now, this is a really important thing for us to see. This, again, is a summary of much of what he has told us in chapter 7. But it's that God could not save us merely with a memo. God could not save us merely through giving us the Bible. Because even though the Bible could show us who God is and could show us what he's like, the Bible does not change our sinfulness. And our sinfulness still makes us an object of condemnation. The Bible is helpful in many ways, but the Bible cannot save us. God needed to do something beyond that. And, and this, he says that the, the law couldn't do it because of the weakened condition of our flesh. And we saw that last week. Our flesh rebels against God's law. Our flesh rebels against every kind of a law. Now, I mentioned this last week with uh, speeding. If the speed limit is 55, we want to go 56 or more. We just want to violate that law. I saw this, this yesterday. I don't know how many of you are aware, but, but Norman uh, Youth Soccer Association had something yesterday called a Silent Saturday. Now, Silent Saturday is something that's being observed around the country with a number of, of youth sports organizations, and the idea was that the coaches and the parents had to remain ex- absolutely silent on the sidelines, and the kids just got to play. Now, that was a law that came out. What did that law produce in parents? Passive-aggressive behavior. That's what it produced in parents because I was over on the sideline. I was, I was one of these people. It's like, you know, we, we just, just bugged us that someone told us we couldn't cheer. Now, I'm not one to berate the ref or to yell at other teams or yell even at our own kids on our own team in, in, in negative ways, but I wanted to cheer. I wanted to say, nice pass, nice shot. I wanted to say these things, but, but there was a rule that we couldn't. So what did we do? I mean, some people were like whispering really loudly just to see what would happen. Where does that come from, folks? It comes from inside of us, this this flesh that rebels against the law, any kind of a law, even good laws. God couldn't save us just through a memo because the memo we rebelled against. So what did God do? Verse 3 tells us, it says, God sent his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and for sin he condemned sin in the flesh. Here's what happened. God sent a living word, not just the written word. In the living word, Jesus was born in Bethlehem, lived a perfect life, went to the cross for sin. In in a fleshly body, Jesus goes to the cross for sin. That phrase, for sin, every time it's used in the Greek translation of the Old Testament, it's talking about a sin offering. The idea is that Jesus went to the cross as a sin offering to pay the condemnation that your sin and mine deserves. And here's the basic idea. Because Jesus did that for us, and because God put the sentence, the condemnation that our sin deserved on him, then we get to walk free. There's no double jeopardy in God's economy. We will not be tried for a crime that has already been adjudicated. In Jesus, the penalty already went down. Therefore, we have the opportunity to walk free. And this is the gift of God that is offered to all who are in Christ Jesus, a no-condemnation kind of life. Now, here's the thing. 
If you are here today and you have never placed your faith and trust in Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, here's what you need to know. You're currently under the condemnation of God. Now, I say that not with joy and glee, and I say that not because I'm better than you. I I say that because at one time I was in that same spot. And it would be unloving for those of us in this room who know Christ to not just tell you like it is, that because of our sin, we find ourselves under condemnation. But there's a way that God has provided for you to go from someone who is under condemnation right now to someone who is no longer under condemnation. And that way is found in Christ. When we place our faith and our trust in him, God puts our guilty sentence on him and we have the opportunity to walk free. We have the opportunity to receive that forgiveness. And the question is, if if you have never placed your faith and trust in Christ, why not? That today would be the day that you understand the condemnation that awaits and you escape that condemnation by receiving the gift of life that Christ is offering. And that can begin just right now where you sit by placing your faith and your trust in him. But here's the thing. Many of us in this room have already trusted Christ. And so how does this, how do these verses apply to us? Well, we need to remember that there is no condemnation now for us. If you've trusted in Christ, there is no condemnation for you. There is no ultimate judgment uh, for your sins that is coming to you. And we need to remember that because many times we want to hold on to our past sin and remember it and beat ourselves up over it and hang on to it. Well, why do we do that? Well, because somehow when we do that, we don't don't intentionally do this, but this is really what's happening. We're saying, you know what, Jesus, your death wasn't good enough to cover that sin. You can forgive the other things, but I need to pay for that one. Friends, there is no double jeopardy in God's economy. The death that Christ died is sufficient to pay the penalty for all of our sins so that we might truly be forgiven. One of the things that Jesus does as we call out to him in the midst of our struggle is he reminds us that there is no condemnation for us. The second phrase that we see, though, is this little phrase in the beginning of verse 4, in order that, in order that. Now, what does that phrase mean? Well, in order that is a phrase that is getting ready to tell us uh, the, the intention or the purpose behind the action. And so what we're getting ready to find out is, why is it that God sent Jesus into the world to die on the cross for our sins? We know it's based on his love and it's out of his love, but was it just for this one-time act of saving us and forgiving us, or did he have something else in mind after the forgiveness had been transferred? And what we see in verse 4 is that God has a plan for us that goes beyond just the moment of our salvation, and it carries on throughout our lives. There is something that we have been saved in order that. Well, what is it? He tells us in verse 4. So we've been saved in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Here's what Paul was saying. What he was saying is that Jesus has saved us and kept us on this earth for the purpose of perfecting us throughout our lives. Not that we will get to perfection in this life, but that the direction of our lives will be in 
following Christ and being shaped more into his image. The Bible calls this process sanctification or the process of of making us more holy, of having the righteous requirements of the law be expressed or fulfilled through our lives as we walk according to the power of the Spirit of God. See, God has made a commitment to perfect us. And, and, you know, many times earlier in the book of Romans, we've seen this, and you probably have had this question before in your life, where you have wondered, well, if, if our salvation is based on what Jesus has done and not on what we do, why not just live as crazy a life as we want to? Why not just get our fire insurance at church camp when we're growing up, eternally speaking, and then go out and live however we want to the rest of our lives? That is selling so short what God wants to do, and it's totally disconnected from what the Spirit of God would, would, would say on the subject. The Spirit of God has come into our lives to transform us throughout our lives. That's the commitment that he has made to us. Any notion that sanctification is not a part of our lives is not a godly notion. God is perfecting us. He is shaping us. He is moving us in the direction of holiness. Again, not that we will achieve perfection in this life, but that we are moving in the direction of holiness and following God. That's what God wants to do. And I, I was thinking about the, the picture of this, about the Spirit coming and dwelling within our lives. And, and the picture that I thought of was connected to the show uh, Shark Tank. Anybody watch that show? Um, for whatever reason, I like this show. If you've never seen it before, here's the idea. A small business owner will walk into uh, a panel, and, and on the panel will be a bunch of, of millionaire, billionaire types uh, who will be sitting in front of them. There's Mr. Wonderful, and there's, there's Damon, and there's Barbara, and there's Mark Cuban. They're, they're sitting over there, Lori, and, and they're, they're going to um, make a presentation, these small business owners, to these millionaire billionaires and ask them to invest in their business in, in, in exchange for, you know, some money. So they, they say, you know, we, I'm asking for $20,000 in exchange for a 5% stake in the business. It's the way the show works. Now, if a shark buys into one of these businesses, they agree to give a certain sum of money. But that is never the greatest asset that they're going to give. The $20,000 no doubt is helpful. But think about what else that small business owner gets. They get Mark Cuban, or they get Barbara Corcoran, who's going to, to help them build a better business because of the commitment that is made with not just their money but their time, a transformation of the business can take place. And here's what we see in the Scriptures, friends. We see that God is so committed to you and to me that he does not just give us salvation, but he moves in. He invests in us through the work of his Holy Spirit, to move us in the direction of holiness. Now, that is really something. See, sometimes we think that the Christian life is all just about a decision on the front end, but the reality is that every decision on the front end is an investment by God, not just in the one-time death of Christ, but in the ongoing provision of God through the Holy Spirit in our hearts and lives to point us in the direction of holiness. What a gift. See, we have been given a no-condemnation kind of life in order that we would walk with God and see his fruit displayed in our lives. There's no condemnation in order that. And the third phrase I want us to see is this, according to, according to. 
throughout these verses, Paul is going to encourage us to live our lives according to the Spirit and not according to the flesh. This goes right back to to what we saw in chapter 7. In chapter 7, we saw that there is a struggle that exists in life between the flesh and the Spirit. And he's going to continue that conversation now. And what, what Paul is going to tell us is that we as believers in Christ, who now are under no condemnation, God has moved into our lives and provided the Spirit with the intention that we would follow Him, with the intention that we would be sanctified by Him. And that happens as we live our lives not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Verse 5 mentions these two categories. He says, For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. Now, these two sides, the, the Spirit and the flesh, are mentioned here. The Spirit here, I believe, is talking about the Holy Spirit and the flesh. Now, now this is something that's really important for us to see. It's possible for us to, to look at this and assume that these are two equal forces, that these are two equal forces. Sometimes people will look at this and even say that the flesh is more powerful than the Spirit based on some, of, some experience that we've had. But here's the reality. The Holy Spirit is way more powerful than our flesh. It's not even close. You know, think about this in terms of OU football. It's been months since I've used an OU football reference, so I've got to try and squeeze it in someplace. So here it goes. Um, Let's think about OU football. At the beginning of the season, OU will typically play a game against a team that has no business being on the field with them. You know, this year the opening game is against Houston, but I don't know who we play next, but it's probably Prairie View A&M. My apologies to the Prairie View A&M graduates who are in existence here with us. But, But here's the thing. OU plays that team. Why do they play that game? It's a glorified practice. It's a guaranteed win. OU's team is much more talented, much better than that other team. It's not not even a contest. Friends, the Holy Spirit is so much more powerful than our flesh. It's not even close. It's a terrible analogy to compare it to football, but I had to squeeze it in there someplace. But think about it. The Holy Spirit is way more powerful. So why do we struggle? Well, we struggle because it gives God glory for us to choose to follow him. God could, could push it through us through just the sheer force of his spirit, but it pleases God that we would choose to live our lives according to the spirit and not according to the flesh. It just, just pleases him that way. God could have made a garden of Eden without the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. He could have done it, but he didn't. Why? Because it pleased God to give humanity the chance to choose, to trust him and to follow him. See, we live out this new life at the old address. It's not a fair fight, but but we do have a choice. Which side are we going to choose? Are we going to choose to live according to the flesh or according to the spirit? Verse 6 says this way. It says, for to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the spirit is life and peace. When you put it that way, who wants to live their lives according to the flesh? Who wants more death? None of us. He's describing it in its most basic end terms to show that believers who are thinking rightly, of course, we would live our lives according to the Spirit that leads to life and to peace. That's what we want. Not according to the flesh that leads to death. Verse 7 
For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. It's talking there about the struggle of chapter 7. If we tried to live out our Christian lives merely in the flesh, we're going to be frustrated and we'll end up uh, futile in our ability to, to do what God has intended, which is to live a life that is honoring to Him, a life that is growing in, in sanctification and in holiness. We can't do it on our own, but we don't have to. God answers our cry by providing His Spirit to move in and invest in us and empower us to do things that we would not be able to do otherwise. Verse 9 lets us know that the Spirit of God has made this investment in all believers, not just some. He says, you, however, are not in the flesh but in the Spirit, if in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. He, he makes this point very clearly here that all who are in Christ have the Spirit of God inside of us. When I talk about the Holy Spirit moving in and investing in us to move us towards sanctification, that's not something that is reserved only for the spiritual elite. It's not something that is reserved only for a pastor or a priest or a pope. It's something that happens for every single person who is in Christ. God has made the same commitment to us to send his Spirit inside of us, to empower us for living. And if the Spirit of God is not inside of us, then we are not a Christian. But if we have trusted in Christ, then the Spirit of God resides inside of us. That's the point of verse, of verse 9. And that's, that's a very important thing for us to see and to remember because sometimes you'll hear people, even other Christians, talk about the Holy Spirit like it's some kind of a club. You have to get your, your membership card by attending a certain kind of church or having certain kind of phenomena or experience. That, that That's your Holy Spirit card, that it's only reserved for some. But here's the thing, friends, that's not what God's Word says. Romans chapter 8, verse 9 is so clear for us. It lets us know that if we are in Christ, the Spirit of God is present. If you know Jesus today, then God has made an investment in you to bring you towards sanctification, to help you to understand His Word and to empower you for godly living. Verse 10 tells us something about our life right now as it talks about death and life. It says, but if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the spirit is life because of righteousness. It's just talking about how the most living thing about us is the spirit of God inside of us that is renewing our soul, that is redeeming us from the inside out, that is preparing us for eternity. See, our outer body is dying. We know that, right? Our, our prayer lists are dotted with cancer. We attend one too many funerals for our liking. We have to say goodbye too early. See, this is the world in which we live, but Christians have a hope for something else because though our outer man is decaying, the Spirit of God is renewing us from the inside out, preparing us for eternity. See, friends, we have a hope because God has made a commitment to us Verse 11, just as another reminder of the power of the Spirit that dwells within us, it says, the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you. He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through His Spirit who dwells in you. Certainly that verse tied with verse 10, I think, is talking about a resurrection life. It's talking about a hope that we have for eternity. 
But it's also talking about giving life, I believe, to our lives right now, to empower us to do what our physical bodies are incapable of doing on their own, and that is to follow God and to glorify Him with our lives. So what does it look like practically for us to live our lives according to the Spirit and not according to the flesh? Well, the first thing I think that we can do is we need to focus. We need to focus. He talks here about what are we going to focus on? Are we going to focus on the things of the Spirit, or are we going to focus on the things of the flesh? That we'll be filling our minds with God's Word. This is where God's Word is extremely helpful for us. How do we focus on God? Not by just getting in a closet and thinking random thoughts. We focus on God by seeing how He has revealed Himself to us through His Word. We understand who He is. We know the direction that His Spirit is going. We, we focus on those things, not the things of the flesh. We focus on God. That's where it begins. The second thing I think that happens after we, we focus on God is that we believe that the Spirit is more powerful than the flesh. We need to believe that. All too often we give up too early because we feel like the struggle of our flesh is too strong. The, the addiction is too strong. So I'm not even going to try to defeat it any longer. My, my pattern of abuse is too strong, so I'm just going to give into it. That's just who I am or whatever the sin struggle that we have. See, when we focus on God and we see who He is, then we need to remember that His Spirit that resides within us is stronger than our flesh. We need to believe that that's true. And once we believe that's true, then we need to live our lives according to that power that resides within us. And that can begin simply by us asking God to do through us what we are incapable of doing on our own. Just just prayer. Lord, work through me what seems impossible otherwise. And then after we pray that prayer of dependence, believing that God is more powerful in His Spirit that is at work within us, after we do that, then we take action steps consistent with that belief. Sometimes we we stop our spiritual growth because we never do anything with it. But once we believe these things are true and once we believe that the Spirit of God is at work within us, then we take action steps that are consistent with that belief. And the thing that underlines all of this is the, is the principle of forgiveness, which is so important for us to remember in the midst of living our lives according to the Spirit. Because sometimes we get discouraged in our Christian life because we feel like we take four steps forward and two steps back every week. We have good moments and we have bad, but we focus on the bad and we forget that there's forgiveness there for those of us who are now in Christ Jesus. And it derails us from continuing to follow Christ. Friends, there's forgiveness that's available. There's power that's available. When we cry out to Jesus for our deliverance in the midst of our struggle with sin, he comes and he renovates us into something that is useful and beautiful for his purpose. Let's pray. Father, I I just want to thank you for the opportunity to look at your word, and I I thank you for just the the joy and the hope that comes from seeing what you have done for us in Christ, that you've offered us a no-condemnation kind of life, and that you have, have invested in us for our sanctification. Father, we are so thankful for that, and I pray that you would help us to be people who just live our lives dependent upon you and live our lives according to the Spirit is at work within us. Thank you, Lord. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.